Please welcome to the show, award-winning journalist, Farah Nasser. See, the first question I wanted to ask you, Farah, mm -hmm. was one of your kids had graduation day. How was that? Yeah, it was great. It was both of them actually, but okay. uh, one of them, yeah, one of them graduated from kindergarten and uh, it was great. It was nice to be in the moment with her um, in that moment and just, you know, see the pride in their face and forget about everything else that's happening in the world and uh, just see that moment of happiness. I, I totally forgot to make a graduation hat, which we had to make at home. So I scrambled at the very last minute and okay. it ended up turning Turning out okay, even with the tassel, it was it was not bad. Nice. I was impressed. And your other kid graduated some some grade. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's now going to go into grade two, and okay. um, yeah. So he's he's they they do. It's funny. Schools now like they do graduation every year. So he's um, yeah. yeah he's excited. He thinks he's like you know so big now, right? Because grade one, grade one, you're a baby, really. And grade two sure. is where it's at. So super super psyched about that. And you're also are you doing the news from home? Is this where you're so, yeah, it's a very good question. I was doing the news from home okay. and um, I am now in the studio. So I'm home right now. We're talking from my house, but I do a newscast uh, at noon and then I do another one, um, which is our over the top. We have a newscast now on Amazon Prime that's being streamed. So I do that. Then yeah. I, I do half of that. And then I come home. Then I go back and update that. Then I do the six o'clock news, the 5.30 and six o'clock news. So it's a bit of a back and forth. I where, know do, really where does the six o'clock take place? Where is that? That's at the studio. Sorry. That's at the studio. So I am doing that from the studio. Yeah. So all the newscasts are happening at the studio. And then I'm okay. coming home to home, homeschool between that time. Yeah. But there have been instances. So for example, when uh, we did the, um, the Black Lives Matter, the protest, I was at that and I was in the middle of that. And um, I was, uh, that next day, I was just a little worried because I was exhibiting a few symptoms. So I went and got mm. a test. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I I said, you know what, let me just do the newscast at home just until I get the test results. And uh, they were negative. And then we waited and then, and then I went back to work. But, um, you know, so sometimes I do do it at home, but generally it's been at the station. Yeah. You, like life for everyone is, 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 is totally different. Um, what sort of, I know you, you said you homeschool as well. Um, mm -hmm. how, how, is, how is that sort of impacted all of this sort of impacted your, your day to day. What are you doing more of? What are you doing less of? How do you balance all this stuff? So I'm certainly playing with my kids more. Um, huh. Yeah, because I'm their only friend, right? So it's uh, my husband goes into his office and he is literally in our it is home office the entire day till like the evening. He has a really, you think uh, my job's demanding, his is even more and he oversees a team and stuff. So anyway, he's in, in our home office. And then yeah. for me, I am, um, yeah, I'm playing with them because they, they really don't have anyone. So there's actually, after this, there's a tea party that's waiting for me that I'm going to go be part nice. of. Uh, yeah, nice. which I'm very excited about. Um, yeah, a lot of Barbies and, and LOL dolls and, you know, stuffies that are waiting. They're all waiting for me. So anyway, just so you know. <laughs> and um, so we, we do that. And then I'm playing a lot of Lego. And, and so a lot more playing, I think, than I did before with my kids, which is actually a lot of fun. I'm quite enjoying I'm, I'm so sorry. Was that me? I think it was me. Okay. I think it was me. Sorry about that. Oh, uh, no, not at all. It only happens when I do this. <laughs> oh, it's weird. Yeah. Um, we were talking about 
how your life has changed, the different stuff you're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess you have what we had recorded already. Do you want me to? Yeah, start? yeah. No, yeah. no, okay. no, no, no. Okay, I know you're, okay. you're playing more with your kids. Yeah, we're playing. So I'm playing more, um, definitely more games with the kids, and then yeah, just trying to be more efficient at work. Like just trying to get a whole day's work, you know, done in in a few hours at two separate times in the day. So I'm there in the day. I come back for a couple hours in the afternoon, and I go back. And um, yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge because even you're not really doing anything the way you want to do it. You know, yeah. like your your mind is in when I'm at work, it's at home as well. When I'm at, at home, it's at work as well. And, you know, I think everybody has that challenge. Have you ever had thoughts of, so I've sort of thought, you know, working from home, you know, knock on wood, company's still ongoing. We still have jobs. Uh, and then I thought, you know, I, I think I'm used to working from home now. I could get used to working from home, taking a walk, um, doing different things. Have Have you thought, I, I like this balance for lack of a better word mm, I, yeah look I, I love it if I could do the newscast at home all the time I probably <laughs> would um, but the reality is in, in the way that we cover the news there needs to be a lot of collaboration and a lot of a lot of kind of meetings that don't work necessarily on the phone as they do in person and then the, of course there's the technology while well, the technology is in advance and I can do th some things at home like things like seeing live feeds come in like things like yeah. that I yeah, kind of have yeah. to do the office so so to be honest, in an ideal world, if I could do the newscast from home every day and be home with the kids until school starts, I would love to do that. But in reality, with our business model, I mean, we have like, I think 80% of our staff at home, but my job sure. specifically is, you know, a little dependent on being yeah. in the studio at times. So For sure. Totally understand. Let's talk about some stuff that has recently gone on past couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, last night, so we're recording this on the 19th. Uh, last night's conservative leadership debate. Mm -hmm. I could, uh, don't tell my wife, she was busy doing something on our anniversary <laughs> at this specific time. I turned it on and I was bored in like yeah. the first 15, 20 minutes. Um, I don't, I don't, it's, it's weird. Very recently it's been, who do you not want to vote for? Like everyone's been talking mm -hmm. about, you know, conservatives are talking about don't vote for Trudeau. This is why he's no good. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. tell me about you, you know, outside of, um, again, I don't know what this uh, gentleman's name is, who is all for um, abortions and sex therapy. I think something like that. Um, right. I, I well, what, know, what, at least he's got something he stands for. I can disagree with it. <laughs> yeah. But like, there's nobody that is, is inspiring. Right. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because the reason that the conservatives lost last time was, and the reason the party is so fractured was because, you know, part of the reason, and maybe this is year, going back years, is like yeah. the Stephen Harper kind of, and then even the Andrew Scheer personality, right? That they can be divisive, that people couldn't get behind. And, you know, they didn't really talk about, well, they did talk about them, but, but listen, the policies, like when you go into an election, everything changes, like when the leadership, and what yeah. they're promising now, it's going to change by the time the conservative, um, you know, the party and the, and the real the real top heads of the party get their hands through, through this policy. But um, I think that's the thing. Like you need to get mm. that the conservatives need somebody who's kind of a bridge builder. And, you know, Peter McKay was thought to be that person, but he's made so many mistakes. 
And then there was this one point in the debate, which I just, and I was half listening to it, half making dinner, kids were talking, <laughs> playing, you know, everything. So I was, but there was one point that I was, I just was, had to shake my head because there was this little boy named Max. I don't know if you saw this or heard about this. I did not so this, know. Okay. You'll love this. So this little boy, um, maybe my son's age, maybe older, he talks about why, why do you want to be prime minister? And Aaron O'Toole answers the question and he's the one who's, uh, you know, really, I shouldn't say mirroring, but maybe, you know, having this like Canada first agenda, you know, make yeah. Canada great kind of thing, you know, kind of agenda. And so he was, um, he was talking about how, I mean, he was just going to all these big concepts and principles and talking about Trudeau's failings. And it's this little kid who's asking this like basic, <laughs> basic question. You should honestly look it up and your listeners should look it up because it's just so it just goes to show that they're not like, read the room, man, read the room. Like, you know, it's just a kid, kid question. Just give a kid answer to it. You know, you don't have to get into all this, all this stuff. So it was just, sometimes I just, and it's not just Aaron O'Toole. It's a lot of politicians who sometimes I just, they can't be humans. And it's just like, just be a human being and answer the question. You have kids. You wouldn't answer that to your kids, you know, like. Well, anyway. was it, was it Lisa Raitt that was moderating? Yes. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You've moderated debates. Yeah. Yeah. Would you have said, uh, Mr. O'Toole, it's, it's like a five-year-old. <laughs> I would, would have liked to, <laughs> but you know, the, the rule in the debate is kind of okay. let the people, let the people decide, right? Like you're not uh, necessarily a fact checker, which is really hard and was very hard mm. for me during the provincial leaders debate because I have all this information and, but your rule is really, yeah, it's really to give them give them the platform and let people decide for themselves. So if you were watching Aaron O'Toole, I wouldn't have had to say that. You would have gotten that from his answer. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So you're not the story. You're not the one who's kind of like, well, this is how it, or this, this, this. Like you, you can in a way kind of have that in your questions, but it's, it's, it's up to the public to really, and I really believe in this in terms of when you're doing a debate. I think people are smart enough to see that. You know, like anybody who's a parent or even not a parent would have heard his answer and said, are you kidding me? Like, you, did you just hear who asked you that question? And yeah, but, but look, it's not, it's not an easy job. It's definitely not an easy job to moderate. Yeah. What, um, for the first time, I'm, I'm impressed with, with these debates in one sense, not this particular one, mm -hmm. but that they go up and it seems to me, you probably know better than I do, but outside of like a pen and paper where they might jot down notes, Mm -hmm. it's like everything seems to be in their head but last night yeah they were reading a lot <laughs> yeah. did, did i just notice that or does that happen all the time no no you, you notice that but it's funny because they come so they'll come in so just so you know how the behind the scenes i think you probably are interested in how it works yeah so they do these so they do these um they do these like fake this debate prep is serious. Like they have somebody who would be me, the moderator, who would be the other two candidates. And they do an actual mock debate and they have a big binder with um, not stickies, but like um, di dividers in them that they can go to, to each point. Right. And um, they are allowed to have that on stage in many debates. And okay. um, yeah, they, they, I mean, they, and they can go through their policy, but yeah, I mean, I think it speaks volumes when they're reading the policy as opposed to kind of knowing it, because the job is not only to retain the information, but is to communicate that information. Right. And, yeah. and convincingly, right. And get people on your side and, and make deals to get your policy through. And so you kind of have to be savvy at that. And when somebody's literally looking down and reading notes, you mean, I think you have an idea of what, uh, what they're like. For sure. I know Daniel Dale, he's, he's popular. He's down in the States now. Mm -hmm. uh, CNN took him away. 
but took him away from Canada. I, he was yeah. a, he was he was a favorite of mine up up up, up here. Yeah. But so he's known for his fact checking of, mm-hmm. uh, of of Donald Trump. And you mentioned that you know as a, as someone who's moderating a debate, fact checking is not necessarily part of the the job description. Um, but what are your 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 thoughts on fact checking, whether it is leaders or whether it is people that represent companies as they're on the news, as they're sort of tell, you know, spewing out whatever it is that they're talking about. Your thoughts on, on do news organizations have a responsibility to just broadcast what someone is saying, or is there also a responsibility to fact check as well? Oh, there's certainly a responsibility to fact check. I mean, we do a lot of fact checking, a lot of organizations now, and, and they've made that such a big part of their mandate because, um, as you know, there are leaders in this world who take, who literally outright lie, like they lie. And so I think that, I think that, yeah, I mean, our responsibility, I mean, in a d- debate format, it's different, right? Because you, you will get the fact checking later. The other parties will fact check be, yeah. themselves, you know, the other, the other, so you'll get, you'll get all that stuff after, but during the debate, you kind of have to let the time go to the people and, and let them have their say. Um, and then, and then call them out when it's like, you know, when they're, when they're monopolizing the time, but news is different. News is very much about fact checking and it's very difficult sometimes because we have so much information going at us. And that's part of the challenge of our jobs now, because we have to be experts on every file. Uh, to be able to to fact check and to be able to really call people out, um, you know, recently we 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 carried live the um, prime minister when he spoke every day at eleven. Uh, we stopped yeah. airing that every single day, but we were airing it for weeks. And then I was anchoring that coverage, and it was um, it part that was part of the job. Like I had to really read the subtext there. I really had to understand. Oh. Each of these, like I had notes and notes on the desk with like, you know, okay, the CERB, this is how much, this is what it's doing. This is how people will apply. This is what, this is what these premiers are saying about this. Um, you know, these were COVID numbers stand where, you know, um, like different things about how um, you know, PPEs and, and things that the prime minister was saying, but necessarily weren't being done or were done too late or things like that. And I had to be, yeah. So and then when we had our correspondence on, those were the things that we explored because you can't just have a leader talk. You have to kind of really get underneath it. I'm not even talking about Trump. I'm talking about any leader. I mean, our leaders, um, you have to really get behind and understand really what they're talking about and what the truth is. Yeah. It's a core principle, how, obviously. How, how hard is it? And, and, and may, maybe you don't struggle with this, but I'm curious if you struggle with your opinion as far as Nasser <laughs> yeah. versus your job and, and what you have to do. I, I, I'd love to understand that struggle because I, I would be very bad at my job if I wasn't allowed to, <laughs> to tell everybody what I thought. <laughs> uh, it's like you're in my head right now because this is something, <laughs> this is something that I struggle with, especially now. Um, mm. Yeah. And, and that is because you might have noticed uh, we've had numerous journalists recently who have gone on Twitter and on social media and have exposed issues that happen in their own companies. And uh, yes, at, yes, yeah. And at first, it was kind of it was kind of thought of as, well, you're not being impartial. But to me, the idea of 
impartiality in a way is a fallacy because you bring your own biases and your own experience to the table. Now, while the goal is impartiality, while the goal is to, to, I mean, of course we'd cover the both covering both sides is the, is just the basic part of it. Like that's just the baseline. Like you have to do that. And not only both sides, multiple sides, but your implicit bias that you have in storytelling, right? The implicit bias that you have um, based on your lived experience, it's, you're a human being before you're a, a journalist. So you will bring, you will bring an opinion, whether you say it or not in how you cover a story. Like it, it to me, it's, I, I, I like the idea. I think, I think it's a journalistic principle. Absolutely. But it, there's also that part that's really like, okay, but there's also a truth here. And then that blurs the line between activism and journalism as well. Right. So mm. when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about truth with Trump, you'll, you may have noticed American journalists now, they're taking a real side here. Right. But yeah. with someone like Trump, it's kind of impossible to just let things go when you hear outright lies again and again and again. So I'll give you an example. When you're calling out those lies again and again and again, people might think, Oh, well, you're biased. Well, are you biased? I mean, you're, you're calling out factual lies, right? So, and at some point it just gets really frustrating. <laughs> so, you know, that comes across because you're a human being. Yeah. And, and so do you, how do you struggle with it personally mm -hmm. in terms of what to say, what not to say, what you, what story, I don't know if you have a choice in what stories you cover, but um, yeah. How do you, how do you struggle with it? How do you sort of deal with it yourself? Well, it's funny because I've been, people have called me, oh, you're way too conservative. You're way too liberal, which means I think I'm doing it right. Like if everybody, you know. If everyone's mad at you, sure. I, if everyone's mad at me, that's great. Like, you know, that, 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 if you think that I'm one people think, one group of people think I'm on one side and one think I'm the other side, that's what I want. But I think, um, I think with me, the toughest part has been um, with a lot of the work I do on race um, because to me, that's not a two-sided story. I think that's mm. fact-based. And I think that race is the biggest story of our time. And I think that there are systemic issues that take place in our city, in our country. Um, and I will not, like, to me, there's no two sides. It's actually what exists. So when I hear a premier like Francois Legault, or when I hear Doug Ford, who Doug Ford actually walked this back, but he still said it, that systemic racism doesn't exist like it does in the United States. Um, I will be quick to point out that that is false. When Francois Legault says that we didn't have slavery like we did in the States, I will be quick to point out that that's not, that's not true. To me, that's not two sides. That's, that's the reality. And they cannot speak to that reality as I can. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, huh. they, they don't have that experience. So some people will say, well, that's your opinion. Well, yeah, it is maybe my, maybe I don't have data points to show you, though there is so much data based on this, but it is, it is the reality for people who are racialized, where they have, are quick to say that it doesn't exist, especially, I, I'll point to Quebec's premier, because, I mean, in that province, we have, you know, a bill that, that, that is, you know, <laughs> prevents religious, religious garb, right? So it's, it's very much... Um, it's very much a struggle. It's, I think it's a blurred line right now. I think there is a lot of activism going on uh, um, alongside journalism, which I don't, I don't know how, you know, all the bosses feel about, but there's certain, we're at a kind of a turning point in history. And I think we have oh. to tell the truth. And to me, impartiality and, and telling the truth are both key principles of journalism. Yeah. 
So in, in terms of impartiality, you know, to me as a viewer um, mm -hmm. or as a consumer, it would be like, okay, if you're going to cover this many minutes or this many stories, for example, on people involved in, let's say, the Black Lives Movement, right. Black Lives Matter Movement, um, I need to give as, as, as much time or uh, as many stories, let's say, against those who might disagree. Is, would that be correct in terms of how someone would perceive impartiality? I'm sure there's people who perceive it that way that you're saying, yeah. hey, I'm sure there, there's, a, there's definitely a segment of the audience who sees it that way, but I would think the majority of the audience and certainly our editorial judgment is that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a story like that, there's, like I said, there's one clear, um, there's one clear, I guess, I wouldn't say side, I would say more, there's, this, there's a movement, there's a movement that's happening right now that you can't ignore. And that's what you're covering. Yeah. So, you know, like, that's, that's the exact Trump example, too, right? Like you, you cannot just give someone like that a pulpit, right? Like just to speak lies, you can't do that. You have to call that mm. out. And then people will say you're calling that out, and you're being fake news, or you're calling that out, and you're being editorial. But again, I mean, it's such a weird world we live in. Thing, things have definitely changed. Um, would you like to one day just do editorial stuff? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I think I'll probably end up there, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think I will eventually. I don't think I'm ready to do that yet. I still think I want to grow before I do that. But mm. I, think, I think later in my career, that's something I would certainly consider. Um, when, George, when George Floyd was killed, um, in the, in the States, uh, it, it unleashed a, a, a movement that has been there, but it's like nothing we've, we've seen before uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of just, just the amount of people, the, uh, the passion, the anger, the frustration. Um, you, you've, you've spoken with, with many people uh, over the past few weeks. Um, I'm wondering if you have a sense or if other people have told you why they think it's exploded up now. I, I asked that to an older man, an older black man. He was, he's, I think, in his 70s. Um, and he, I said, what do you think it's taken? Like, why is it now? And he seems to think it's because of the young people, because of millennials who are not taking no for an answer. And that, you know, maybe the older generation was used to being like, we're going to protest, we're going to do this, but, you know, um, and we're going to do everything we can to get this message out. And then it kind of, it's, it's, it kind of fizzles because people get exhausted and, you know, they, they try to try to move the needle. But then there's this new generation, this really hopeful young generation that's like, no, we are, this is how it is. This is, the, we will not be treated like that. Like, even when you see reporters, like, you know, when I was young, I would never be able to say anything about, against the company I worked for because you have to protect the brand. You have to, go to protect the company. And now these young reporters are like, no, I, this is not right. I'm going to call this out. And I really see a shift with, with younger journalists, at least. And, and I think that's a microcosm of, of people out there. Like there's really, they really have the courage. They have the guts and they're like, and, and they're, there's so many of them that are mobilized. And I also feel, and this is my personal opinion, he didn't say this, um, that I think that there's, a real involvement for people who are not racialized as well, 
who are part of this movement. Like I've really huh. noticed that in the pro- protests that I've attended that it's, I mean, it's, it's not like, it's maybe majority black, but even some of them are half, half, like they're people who are not racialized, who are allies, who are like, no, this is BS. My eyes have been closed for so long. This is happening. And I want to be part of the change. I want to be on the right side of history about this. So I think those two factors, but I have to say, I just find it really strange that we've had so many videos from the time of Rodney King. Yes. And they don't move the needle like this George Floyd video did. And I don't know the reason behind that, but I'm glad it did. Um, hmm. Though it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how many more videos we have to see for people to, to open their eyes, you know? Uh, maybe you're not allowed to answer this question and I, and I would totally appreciate it. Okay. Um, but it, when you, what, just after you said that, I, I thought of, I'm wondering what conversations and maybe I only see this on television, so maybe this doesn't happen. So right. in, in the newsroom, before you go on air, maybe you're sitting down with all the producers and the, yeah. you know, everyone saying, the writers, here, yeah. Here, yeah, here are the stories we're going to cover. Here's, mm-hmm. um, and I remember your TEDx talk that, that you gave, and I, maybe you've given many of them, but I saw the, the Don Mills one right? Um, about having these conversations, and there was always that gentleman that rolled his eyes. Um, yeah. Has that started to happen with, and what I'm getting at is, are people covering the news, bringing the news to us, are they getting tired of, okay, can we stop leading with race? Can we do something else? I think, see, I, like I started doing this work uh, a couple of years ago at Global, right? And or maybe more. Anyway, and I think when I was pushing for it all the time, there was certainly eye rolling. Like, I'll be honest with you, I'd be sitting in those meetings and they, I, I know, like, I don't, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to read it. I just knew, like, they were just like, oh God, here she is with another one of these stories. And again, to me, it bleeds into so many different things. Since Donald Trump's election, like all this stuff has really bubbled to the surface and it's the reality that so many people are living. And so I would bring it up again and again and again. And I'd say, we have to cover this, you know, that kind of thing. And I think there was also the fear that it's like, oh, if we talk about this, you know, defaced thing or whatever, are we going to, are we going to, you know, incite people who are copycats? Cause we're giving them a, you know, we're giving them legitimacy by putting it on the news. And, and to me, that's a real cop out because it's like, no, you need to show what's happening in society right now. In any case, um, I think right now it's totally changed. I think hmm. that, that rolling of eyes had happened for years, but I think now I think everybody is behind it and understands how important this is. Yeah, yeah. In newsrooms, I have noticed a shift. Where did you, maybe you don't see it this way, but where did you get your, um, um, where did you get that, that thing inside of you? You're, listen, you're female, you're brown, you're Muslim. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's not faces. There's more that I'm seeing now. Right. But was there ever fear that I, maybe I should just keep quiet and do my job best, best not to shake things up? Like, where did you get that thing inside of you that says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to push for this. I first, Far, I first discovered you yeah. um, when you did the Aleppo right. story. And I right. was so happy. I was like, wow, this is, yeah, I get that, that, that Far is Muslim, but this, this is going out to all of Canada. This is amazing. Um, yeah. Where, like, where did you get it from? You know, I think I'll answer that in two ways. So I think 
I grew up with a mom who didn't have your typical South Asian friends. Like she had like a gay best friend in the eighties and she had a, um, you know, her, yeah, her mom was, uh, her best friend was like from Saskatoon, was a white lady from Saskatoon who grew up on a farm and like, or, or her other best friend at work was Jewish. So I think I was just exposed to a lot of people in our lives that taught me about, treatment. And I think my mom was very much like, you know, even though our community may feel a certain way, that's not the right way. You know, like you have to dig deeper and you have to see who people are and everybody has their thing, but everybody just deserves to be treated with respect and with dignity. And I think, so I think that is something I grew up with. And, but then when I came to global, I mean, I was high. One of the reasons I know I was hired was because I'm a person of color. I mean, I, I know that I also have experience and, and things like that, but I know they sure. were specifically looking for that in that role. Um, and I took that responsibility and I still take it very seriously. Mm. If I'm going to be the face, I need to, I need to do the work too, right? It's not enough to just have a front facing brown girl on co-anchoring the newscast. It, you, I have to do the work and, and that's a responsibility. Again, I, I still, I, I take with me every day into work. How can That's I change amazing. things? How can I open eyes? How can I make people see things a way that they wouldn't see it normally? Yeah. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, oh my goodness. There was something on the tip of my tongue that I wanted to ask you, but it is gone, but it will, it will come back. Oh, here it is. You talked, you talked about your mom and sort of her, her mm -hmm. circle of friends, how that, that sort of molded you. Um, I'm sure you've told the story multiple times, but tell me about, I don't know if it was both your parents, but I know your dad, mm -hmm. like what did he give you, you and your brother newspapers to read? Did he sit you, <laughs> tell me about that story. So, Cause you and so your brother my, are both in, in, in media. Yeah. We're both journalists, which is so yeah. funny. Cause I feel like my parents really were grooming us to be doctors. Uh, Cause we grew up <laughs> like, you know, lower middle class. And like the thought was like, if you're a doctor, you'll get out of this. You'll, you'll have money. You'll be able to get, you know, do whatever you want. That's, that's your ticket. Be a doctor. Um, like, you know, for, for many, many um, minority uh, communities, that was like, you know, the thought then, but what they didn't realize was my mom between, you know, exposing me to, to this different world. And, and she was also a professional. So she worked and, and so too, showing me all that life and, and those skills and, and that open-mindedness and she was in HR so she's she my mom is a very natural interviewer like when you if you meet her she'll just interview you and you won't even realize and you'll tell her your whole life story so I had that okay to that I kind of I guess am like now and then I had my dad who just totally like was obsessed with news like my dad is just like he would watch it all the time but no more than that he would subscribe to all three newspapers and when he couldn't he would even go to mcdonald's and sometimes get the newspaper and he would he would come home and we would like he would literally wake us up with like three or four newspaper clippings in his hand and he would he would like make us read them before we even brush our teeth or put our clothes on like we'd be in our pajamas in our bed and he'd be like quizzing us basically and then um to understand to know that you know we we understood what what was read and, and editorials he would make us read editorials all the time to get oh. different perspectives so that was yeah. a big thing for him editorials and to see how how different people saw the world so i think 
there was all of that. And then he also was just a very, he's a, he just loves learning. And I think my brother and I kind of get that from him. So when we would do, like I did a project on, on Japan, for example, like we'd go to the library, we'd learn everything. We did Japanese food. We go to the Japanese cultural center in Toronto and he just made us do research like a lot. So on, on things, cause I think he was personally interested. So I think all of that has made my brother and I not doctors, but journalists. <laughs> wow. Was there, was, was there always a desire to be a journalist or at least on TV? Not on TV. I don't know. There was a desire to do public speaking. I think that was it. Like I really felt more comfortable. I felt very natural from an early age, just speaking in front of a crowd. Like I didn't have that nervous energy that a lot of people have, um, which now I see as like, is unique. But then I just thought everybody was like that. And when I, when I realized that I actually enjoyed it, like I, I actually thrived off that energy and, and did well when I, when I was exposed to that and whether that was like speech competitions or debate club or whatever, um, that's kind of how it came to me. And then couple that with the love of the news, it just, it just kind of worked out. I, I don't know if it was necessarily journalism in its early stages, but then it kind of evolved that way. Yeah. I, I'm curious about the impact that uh, traveling uh, has, 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 has given you, has imp- impacted the way you cover and what you cover. I know that uh, earlier on, uh, I, th- I think as you were moving through journalism, you went to New Delhi. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, maybe I'm wrong on this. Did you, did you end up going to Syria? Is that why you covered it? I did, yeah, you yeah, did. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so, so tell me about places like that, and, and maybe you've gone to other places, but tell me about mm-hmm. going to these places and, and how that impacted you directly in terms of here's a story on Aleppo and and if if Toronto was Aleppo what would happen mm-hmm. versus as well as you know going to these places and and sort of how it impacted you in terms of maybe the empathy that you sort of uh developed for different cultures different people different situations mm-hmm. I think um one of my, I mean, you talked about Aleppo and, and, and uh, New Delhi, and I, I did, I worked for CNN for the summer, the summer before 9-11, incidentally, because uh, mm-hmm. I was going to go back and, and wasn't able to after 9-11. But it's, it, I mean, those, those things certainly shaped my perspective, but so did vis- visiting villages. I vi- visited it in, in, you know, poorer parts of the world. I visited a village in, um, in Zanzibar and spent some time there. And it was, uh, you know, a women, women who got this microfinance loan from the Aircon Foundation. And they built this, like this soap making business and ended up selling the soap around the world in hotels. And anyway, it just, it kind of taught me about the human spirit and resilience. And I think, I think that has really helped me in terms of my journalism. Um, because I think certain people look at other people from parts of the world as just kind of, that's their life, that's our life. But I think the human spirit, and I think us as humans just generally want to do better and not just for ourselves, for other people. So I think the, the, those experiences certainly taught me. And like, I, I think every kid, like I think, I think the world would change if everyone had the opportunity to travel and go see another part of the world mm. where people are poor, or people um, have bigger challenges. I, you know, I think that would, that would completely change our country if we had our youth being able to, to go on trips like that because they're life-changing. Yeah, we went on a, a, a trip like that this past uh, summer, last summer, mm. we had a, a chance to go to, uh, to Eastern Europe mm. and we ended up in, um, in Auschwitz at Auschwitz. Wow. And so, you know, we learn about that in school and what happened and it's sort of a, 
it's ab- I mean, for at least for our community far, it's abstract, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then as soon as you go there, I was floored. It's like my wife and I, we, we, we cried there. We had our son who was 13 at the time mm. who came with us. Um, and it was like, you'll like, this is like, you'll never learn this in school. Just, totally. you know, it's, it was, yeah. It's life changing. Yeah, it absolutely was. I remember years ago when I was in university, uh, having a chance to go to, uh, to Hunza. Mm. northern pakistan and just seeing the the desire to learn that people had there and the stuff they overcame and never complained and stuff and i go that's all we do back home is complain of stuff and i come here and it's like they're so happy just to have stuff you know to, to help them it's it's yeah i'm in agreement with you traveling you know i'd like i like to go to the beach but yeah. traveling, you know, to different parts of the world to see different totally. cultures is so life-changing, just amazing. Um, you've done a number of stories. Uh, which, which one are you most proud of and why? I think the Aleppo one is definitely up there because I think it, it made something that was so abstract accessible to people. And I think, again, like my favorite work to do you know, there's reporters who like thrive on the accountability and holding the, you know, politicians to account. And And to me, my favorite journalism is the eye-opening journalism, is the perspective type journalism, like, like showing a different perspective that you normally wouldn't see. And I think Aleppo really spoke to that. There's another piece I did. It was called First Time I Was Called. And it was about um, Ah, talking about the first- yeah, like the, yeah. your first experience with racism, that first word, everybody remembers that first time they were called something horrible um, wow. or maybe one, one of the first times. And, you know, we interviewed so many people and, and I really learned a lot from that experience and it, it exposed me to my own bias in a way. So it gave, gave me perspective in terms of the brown privilege that I have as compared to somebody who's black or indigenous. Um, and then it also showed me the importance of kind of people feeling like their experience is legitimate, like their voice is heard. Because the one thing I heard through that experience when everybody was sharing their experiences was, I wish somebody would just have said to me, you are right in feeling the way you feel. You know what I mean? Like you're not whining. This is wrong what happened to you. This person, you know, mm-hmm. said this bad word to you on the bus. And, and like, you know, Julie Black, one the R&B singer, she said, you know, yeah. I wish somebody had come up to me after and said, I am so sorry they said that to you. That is not Canada. That is wow. not how you should be treated. And, and I kept hearing that theme again, you know, just to kind of give that person just a feeling of like, no, this is not right. And you are okay to be upset about that. It's kind of like we need that, which is so sad, but it, it is how it is. Anyway, that was really a really eye-opening and an almost cathartic experience for me and also the people that we interviewed. Wow. It's interesting that we, that we do remember the first time. Mm-hmm. it's really weird because when you said that I'm thinking I can it's the first time and, and maybe it's happened other times but I, yeah that first time in grade seven mm. for me and I got freaked out because the guy called me Packy yeah and then the teacher said what are you guys arguing about I said he called me Packy the teacher sat down and started laughing and I'm thinking <gasps> I'm thinking hold on I'm thinking oh my god and then the teacher just, he went, ha, ha, and then he stern face. And he looked at the kid. He goes, get to the office. That was not funny. 
And I was like, I was like, okay, phew. <laughs> you know, it was like- Because you thought you were going to get in trouble. At that moment, yeah. Exactly. It's not oh. legitimacy, I'm telling you. Like you, yeah. you, you, you question your, your, like so many people question themselves. Like when they were going through this experience, even Jagmeet Singh was talking about, you know, having his turban pilled. Like you question- Oh, maybe I deserve that because I am this color, or maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Maybe I don't belong here. Like, there's just so many things that that one experience kind of exposes about yourself, which I just found fascinating. Yeah. What did you think? Speaking of Jagmeet Singh, what did you think of him being uh, his response after he was uh, kicked out of the house? Yeah, that was. It was. I think he. He. I mean, uh, I've known him for a long time. He, I, I'm. I think he handled everything the way it should have been handled. I, I think it's very sad that we live in a society. Um, I mean, that chamber itself ha ha like has a history of racism. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. like our, our country, like we just sometimes forget that we are not, our, our motto is diversity is strength, but let's be honest about what's happening here. And I think he exposed that in a way uh, with that exchange. I didn't know that, that's Canada's motto? Yeah, or, or is it <laughs> I think it's Toronto's motto. Yeah, that's I think it's Toronto's diversity I was like, strength. really? Yeah. For a second, I go, wow, I, didn't, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's but it's inter it, interesting if it's even Toronto's. Um, yeah. Who do you? When you got started, was there someone that you sort of saw ahead and said, "I want to be like that mm -hmm. broadcaster and be like that journalist"? Yeah, there was there was uh, you know um, Monica Diol who was the oh, only, yeah. like there was. Well, there was nobody in news, right? Remember, there was like nobody in news. So she was the only person on TV. So she was the only one that I was like, okay, she's brown. Maybe I have a chance. Like, I remember there was an article. She was in the, remember the TV guide? It was yeah. the last page. Yeah, it was the last page of the TV guide. It was my grandma's house. I remember ripping it out and just like carrying it with me. I don't know why, but I, like I kept it in my wallet, like as if it was just like, I don't, I don't know whether I thought that if somebody ever said to me, oh, you'll never make it, I just pulled out the article and showed it to them. Like, I don't know if that's, if that's why I kept it, but I remember keeping it for years because I just thought this is possible. Like, she's on TV, it's possible. But she wasn't a news person. The one news person who I've actually recently reached out to is somebody who was on City TV many years ago. Her name, she wasn't as well-known. It was, her name's Manita Rajpal. And uh, okay. she ended up making it to CNN afterwards. And um, she's out of the business, long out of the business now. But I reached out to her recently and I said, you know, you don't know me, but I used to like tape your segments every day on the news and analyze them and emulate them, you know? Um, because she was a great journalist. Uh, like I said, she made it to CNN eventually, but, um, yeah, but there weren't, there weren't many, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. It was pretty white back then. And what about now? Is there anybody, any of your mm. peers, whether in Canada or yeah. in Europe or in the States where you go one day, I want to have, I want to be like, like that. that I, platform. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one person that I've idolized for a long time is uh, Christiane Anamanpour. I think she's uh, an excellent, um, an excellent journalist, and you know her war coverage, and and you know she's just done amazing work here. Adrian Arsenault is somebody. She's on CBC. She's somebody I really admire um, in terms of interviewing. Uh, also, actually, this is a CBC person. Is Matt Galloway? Um, he's an excellent, yeah. excellent His interviewer. His voice is so good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's just, he, he asks questions in a way where they're so pointed and direct and crisp, but at the same time there, he asks it in kind of a nice way. Like he's not, yes, he's not bullying or full of like, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's not in a, in a condescending way. It's just in a very, 
very kind kind of way, but he gets to the point and he doesn't let you off. And I really, I really like that. Yeah. Interviewing is something that I really admire. But I think I, I'm, I'm trying to grow at as well. Yeah, I miss him on Metro Morning. I know he's got a bigger, a bigger yeah, platform yeah, yeah. with the current, but uh, every yeah. morning that was our, our, our radio was uh, was yeah, listening to, uh, to, uh, to. I always thought it was because it's early in the morning. That he was too yeah. tired to to raise his voice. <laughs> May, you know what? Maybe you make a good point. Actually, that could be that could be why. But even Anna Maria Tremonti, great journalist, and then we have a yes. guy um, that that I work with, um, Mike Armstrong. He's a reporter for Montreal. He's a national reporter. He's like my favorite. Just a great storyteller on global. Um, so there's yeah, there's tons of them. You've mentioned uh, CNN a couple of times, and, and maybe mm-hmm. this isn't maybe CNN has nothing to do with this, but. Uh, I read somewhere that you chose to stay in Toronto. There mm-hmm. was there was a, a a calling from a big company, a big opportunity elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Tell tell me about that decision. Why why didn't you? Why why Toronto? It, it wasn't CNN, so just let's okay. make that clear. <laughs> but but um, but it was um, it was local stations, two local stations in the states. Um, in San Francisco, particularly, uh, my husband works in Silicon Valley, so he's back and forth. So he, his company really wanted us to move um, to the states. So uh, I went there. I explored two opportunities uh, that were presented to me, and um, had two offers, and uh, they were, you know, more money and probably more prestige and more growth uh, than I would get in Canada. But when it came down to it and we were going to move, um, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't, because I just thought about, that was before, right before we had kids. And I, I just thought, I don't want my kids to grow up away from their grandparents. I want mm. them to grow up Canadian. Like that's a big thing. To me, success is more than my career. Success to me was having a family and it is having a family. Like that's my bigger measure of success. And I had to really kind of understand that. And, and I think, and look, I, there's so many times I regret the move and I think, should I have done this? Should I have done oh, this? Where could I have been? Yeah. Many times I look back and, and I do think that, I mean, not, I wouldn't say regret. Maybe regret is the wrong word. Maybe it's more, I think, what if that's a probably better way to put it. Yeah. yeah there's many times I, I look back, I say, what if, what if I could have, I could have been like that. But I know that already in my job, I feel like I wish I had more time with my kids and my family. So I can't imagine if I was to have that much success, what it would be like. So I'm very glad that I, I chose, you know, family. And I'm so, when I see my kids with my parents or their, my in-laws, like that to me is just like the best thing, as you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you have, you have a kid, like, it's just great to see them with family and yeah we wouldn't have had that if we had moved away. So, you know, you make sacrifices and you make tough decisions and I'm, I'm really glad. I'm really happy with the decision I made. That's interesting. Um, the past three months, uh, especially the past couple of weeks uh, have been, uh, has been a time that for me at least has um, given me more empathy for others. You know, it, you know, it was learning as, as we were all, as we were all what people would say the same boat battling COVID-19. I quickly found out, or maybe I was slow to find out that, you know, we might be in the same storm of COVID-19, but there's some mm-hmm. people that, that have a nice yacht and there's all the people that might have a plank and there's other people treading water. Exactly. Um, and and to, to understand uh, especially with our indigenous communities, how they've been, mm-hmm. um, how they've had to approach COVID nineteen 
in a way specific to the hand that they've been dealt by by our society by by you know government legislation and so on um and, and now over the past couple of weeks as we as we're coming to grips with our with another part of our history our our our, our history in terms of how we've treated people because they're black mm-hmm. um and i've asked people this this question in terms of are you hopeful uh why are you and why are you not so i want to ask you farah you know I, I, all the stuff that we have gone through that we are going through today that we're going through we'll continue to go through do you do you have hope i'm definitely hopeful because i think this is a movement i don't think it's a mo- moment i think it's a movement i think we are now finally heading in the right direction and you're seeing that in industry i'm seeing that in my industry that you know i had a i had to do a a panel discussion today with the four news leaders in Canada. I had to grill them on, you know, racism and diversity for one of our conferences that we do annually. And there is definitely now finally an, an, a really real desire to listen and to stop being defensive and to understand and to make real systemic change. Now I say I'm hopeful, but at the same time, I'm also frustrated. I'm frustrated that we've been having these conversations for so long and it's taken the death of a black man to, to make this kind of change. It's taken people airing out their grievances on Twitter. It has taken, you know, this real moment, uh, to, to, for people to understand what black people, what indigenous people have been saying for generations um, you know, I, I said today on this panel, like we, this was our reality from birth. This is a reality from, we've been fighting this fight from grade school to middle school, to high school, to university, to our first job, to our kids first year in school. Like it's, it's just this. And, and, and I'm saying we black and indigenous Canadians have been facing it way more than I ever have. And so, but it's taken this to make change like that frustrates me. Yes. Change is great, but I think we also have to acknowledge the wrongs. I think we have to acknowledge the problems that we've had. And I think unless we acknowledge systemic racism, for example, and that's why it's so important for me, for premiers, for me um, to call out premiers who are not using the right word, until we recognize it, we can't make meaningful change. You have to know what's wrong before you can fix it. You can't compare this to bullying or feminism or things like that. This is beyond, this is something bigger than that. You know, yes. because these are people who are racialized, but also, uh, you know, had to face face the same feminism battles. There are people oh. who are racialized who also face bullying. There are people who are racialized, but also, also, like, it's not, you know, and, and, and to me, there's still a lot of those comparisons being made, which shows me that people don't fully understand the issue, which is frustrating. So hopeful, but still a little frustrated. Yeah. You finished off your, your TEDx talk with three words. Do you remember those, mm-hmm. those words? Be kind, generous, and respectful. Um, right. Tell me about those words for you. What, what do they mean mm. for you? So I think to me, kindness is above all. This is, this is something I tell my kids. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, obviously, I want them to be smart. I, you know, I want them to be, to be happy. I want them to have all these things. But to me, I, going into the world, the kindness part of it. When I was looking for a partner, my, my list of things I made for what I wanted to see in a future partner... <laughs> 
kind, and my husband knows he lost, but I still have the list. Kind is number one. Kind to me is, is above all else. And I mm. think, I think you have to walk into the world that way. I think we all have to for each other. So that's, huh. that's one. The other words were be generous, right? Yeah. And and I think that is giving of ourselves. I think that is not just generous, like money generous. I think that's, that's right now that generosity is listening, is giving our time and listening. Mm. And what was the last one? Respectful. God. Respectful. Yeah. And I think, I think that speaks for itself, like respecting each other's beliefs and, 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 and our own personal lived experience, right? Because we are an expert in our own lives, right? So when, when you, you know, I saw the Sandra O oh clip today where she was talking in the 90s about issues in women in film. And, 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 you know, the interviewer was just looking at her like, oh, really? That's happening? You know, it, it infuriated me because I've been on the other side. I'm sure you he have. Chall- he, ch- he challenged her. He wasn't even Yeah, you saw that one. You yeah. saw that one. Yeah. And it was just, it was beyond frustrating to me. Like, have the respect for someone to know that they're not making this up. You know, like. Yeah. And, and, and just respect their point of view and listen, it goes both ways. Like that colleague I talked about in my TEDx talk, who is a Trump supporter, who's somebody who uh, like ideologically, I do not agree with on a lot of key points, but I listened to his points. And Mm. sometimes people just want to be heard because they feel disenfranchised. So even the other way we have to, we have to open up unless it's hurtful, hateful, and, you know, affects your mental health. But, you know, we have to listen to where people are coming from. And I think we're so divisive. That's the only way for us to heal. Farah, I am so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on.